possible that we might see record viewing the figures. Shows renewed in May. Uh, having to reduce their advertising out there as well. pretty positive for the game. That has increased 17% year on year. Hello and welcome to The Amp, the podcast from Ampere Analysis that brings you the latest news, research and business insights from industry experts in the global media landscape. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the AMP podcast. My name is Richard Cooper, and I'm a research director here at Ampere Analysis. In this episode, I'm going to be joined by Richard Broughton, Maria Dunleavy, and Annabel Yeomans, talking about issues which are affecting the media industry across a variety of our research segments. To begin, I'll be talking to Richard Broughton about his recent report, 300 Channels and Nothing to Watch, a sentiment all of us, I think, have had from one time or another. And then I'm going to be talking to Maria Dunleavy about the rise of the short-form social video platform TikTok, and in particular, its sponsorship of the recently concluded Euro 2021 football tournament. And then finally, my colleague Annabel Yeomans about the impact that the Warner Brothers merger with Discovery has had on Discovery's recently launched Discovery Plus video on demand service. So without further ado, Richard, your report entitled 300 Channels and Nothing to Watch looks at how consumers' viewing satisfaction is increasingly being met and what the implications are for those newer entrants into the video-on-demand sector. So when you're talking about satisfaction in the report, where does that data come from and what exactly do we mean by satisfaction? So thanks thanks for having me on, Richard. Um, so this was really um, a consequence of a, a few weeks back when I was looking at the far too many video on demand services that I have access to and looking for something to watch. And it was quite a quick process. I fired up a couple of them and then found um, a show I wanted to watch. And it, it occurred to me that the last time that I had channel hopped had been maybe a decade ago. I, I, I don't struggle to find anything to watch. There's always something available in the vast catalogs and video on demand libraries. So what I wondered was how many other consumers in the market feel similarly that they no longer have that problem, that they fire up their TV, they look through the list of 300 broadcast channels and think, well, there's nothing that appeals to me. So fortunately, we have, um, we have quite an extensive array of sentiment data from some of our consumer research, our quantitative consumer polling that we've been conducting for the last um, five, six years. And one question in particular that we've been asking for a consistent time period since, um, since back in about 2017 has been asking consumers how strongly they agree with the sentiment, um, I can generally find something that I want to watch on TV or online. Um, so I started to look into this data, and what's what's quite clear about um, sentiments towards that question is that they've steadily been quarter on quarter been increasing in terms of the number of people who are uh, are quite happy with their current content offer. They can easily find something they want to watch. So that was the thesis of this um, uh, this piece of research that there are more consumers who are, are quite confident that they they never really have any problems. Um, looking for TV and film as if there's something in the, the, the video on demand or TV services they have access to that, uh, that they would want to watch. So why is this upward trend important? And, and what are the factors other than necessarily content availability that are likely contributing to it? Yeah, so um, the, the, the first thing I, I looked at actually is um, whether this was I guess with any consumer research, you'd always get artifacts in the data. This is is polling and there are a whole range of different factors that could potentially influence this. But what was quite clear when I examined the data is that the trend is consistent 
across markets. So in all of the territories that we've been um, looking and asking this question for, for a long enough time period, the trend is basically the same. So it's happening across different territories. It's not you know, being skewed by a single market. Um, and also, perhaps more importantly, um, there is a, a correlation, an imperfect, but a clear one nonetheless, between the number of consumers who are satisfied with their TV offer that they can find something they want to watch and the proportion of consumers who have access to or are using a subscription video on demand product. So that correlation would imply that it's it's uptake of video on demand products that is driving this change in sentiment. And that, of course, makes perfect sense if you think about the reasons for people being satisfied. They, they don't have that limitation in terms of their choice. They don't have just 50 channels, 100 channels, 200 channels. They have 30,000 hours of content they can watch on one service alone. Um, so it, it really is linked fundamentally to, to the core availability of content on the subscription services in particular, but also some of the ad-funded services that people have at their fingertips now. Even with the sort of saturation of subscription video on demand platforms, um, certainly through lockdown, a few of my friends felt they'd kind of completed Netflix in terms of the content that was available. Um, did those prolonged lockdowns through uh, the course of the pandemic have any impact on that level of viewer satisfaction? Uh, yes, yes, it did actually. So um, temporarily, um, but there, there was an observable effect. So if we, we were tracing the proportion of people who strongly agree with this statement. It, it's risen pretty consistently by about, about 25-30% over the past four or five years, um, up from about 12% of consumers who are you know, really happy with the TV um, and film on offer to uh, about, one in, about one in six consumers, 16%. That trend took a, a, a temporary dip in the middle of last year. Um, so it dropped, dropped back down to about 14%. Um, and one of the key reasons, in, our, in my view personally, is, is, is that that will be a consequence of the, uh, the pandemic, that people binging through all of the available content, the, the hiatuses in production, meaning that there's, there's less new, fresh new content flowing through. Uh, and then that sentiment beginning to wane as people think, well, actually, there, there isn't so much to watch as I, as I previously thought. Um, but the trend is well and truly back on track. So at the beginning of this year, um, the, the numbers were picking up again as new TV series, movies all began to debut on the platforms. Now, you said earlier that the trends that we were seeing were the same across all of the markets that we're covering. But have there been any sort of variations as a result of, you know, say, the cultural optimism often typified by uh, US consumers? Yeah, so that's, that's always something that um, you need to look out for in, in any sentiment-based question that different markets will express their feelings to different degrees of strength. So you will naturally see variations across territory in terms of the proportion of people who are agreeing or strongly agreeing or, or a bit um, ambivalent about uh, a particular topic. Um, so that's why this research has looked primarily at the, um, the, the trend over time uh, across markets rather than perhaps the absolute differences across countries. Nonetheless, you do, even with that in mind, you do tend to see some differences cross market and those territories which do have higher uptake of video on demand services and higher usage of video on demand services tend to have slightly stronger sentiments. It's not a perfect correlation, as I think I mentioned before in the, in the podcast, but um, there's a strong enough link that, that leads us to, to think that that's obviously a clear factor and perhaps more important than some of the cross market differences um, in the ways that consumers answer those sorts of sentiment-based questions cross-market. Now, among these particularly satisfied uh, consumers, 
other than being um, subscribers to SVOD platforms, is there anything else that's making them unique? Well, that, that was the really interesting thing because, because broadly speaking, no, that the, there wasn't there wasn't a huge amount that made them unique. They they were slightly younger, slightly higher income, and had a slight tech uh, sort of tech savviness bias. But that's largely linked with being a a video on demand user more generally. So we can't necessarily assume that that's a, um, a defining characteristic of this group. Um, there were some very slight skews. So the genre preferences are pretty much in line with average, but the group was a little bit more receptive to international content, which I guess if you think about the the video on demand services like Netflix and Amazon and so on, have, a, have an increasing proportion of globalized content. And that for, for any given consumer broadens the options that they have at their fingertips if they're if they're an English speaker and willing to watch French or German series it means they can then watch more series effectively uh, and vice versa um, beyond that I think the interesting thing was that they were pretty representative of of consumers and I think that's that's probably one of the key findings in this research and that as they're not especially unique it suggests to me that as more consumers get access to video on demand services across different markets, we'll see this trend continuing. And it's not just a matter of early adopters driving this pattern. It's more about a fundamental shift in how the average consumer thinks about the array of TV and film that they have access to. Now, I'm going to really put you on the spot here, Richard. Um, are you going to name any services in particular where the subscribers to which were particularly satisfied? Well, it's, it's more of a general sentiment analysis for, for particular cohorts of consumers. So um, we haven't pulled out individual service characteristics because any household will have an array of broadcast and um, subscription and free video on demand service. And it's effectively the confluence of all of those products and services that is driving the, the sentiment in for that particular consumer. Um, however, what I certainly would say is that um, we see some of the dynamics that are reflected in, the, in, in this sentiment question, reflected in the performance and success of video on demand services in the real world, i.e. that those with larger and more compelling content libraries are able to cut through, um, cut through the, the, the noise in the market and, and grow faster, maintain their, their, their subscriber bases and generally succeed in the market. And it's, it's one of the reasons that the big US services have seen basically world domination so far is that they have large content libraries and or very strong IP that helps drive people to their um, subscription products. Well, yeah, indeed. Almost inexhaustible uh, smorgasbord of content being offered to consumers. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you, Richard. This is a particularly fascinating topic, but uh, I think I will uh, need to, to move on. Uh, those of you who've been avidly watching the Euros over the past few weeks might feel like right now you've got uh, nothing to watch. And certainly for disappointed England fans watching Italy triumph through penalties, it may have left them not wanting to watch anything else for, for quite some time. However, one thing that stood out to us at Ampere during the tournament was the global sponsor, short-form social video platform TikTok. Uh, now, the deal was estimated to have been worth tens of millions of pounds, and it marks the first time a digital entertainment platform has sponsored a major football tournament. For many people in the industry, accustomed to dealing with long-form content, TikTok is simply a short-form social video phone app. Maria Dunleavy from our markets team is here to bring that notion a little bit more up to date. So firstly, uh, Maria, what makes TikTok quite so special? 
Oh, well, thanks, Richard. Oh, I think one of the standout attributes TikTok has is its content discovery feed, which is quite central to the TikTok experience, and it's where users spend most of their time. And TikTok actually revealed how its recommendation feed works about a year ago. So to give it a bit of a breakdown for those of you who've managed to resist joining the app so far, when you open TikTok, you land on the For You page, which is essentially an endless stream of content. And how long you spend watching a video, whether you engage with it by liking, commenting or sharing, all of those signals are being tracked and then tied in with user information like age, location and what accounts you might be following. Now, obviously, uh, recommendation systems are all around us, but TikTok's algorithm rewards content above all else. So it essentially gives more weight to strong indicators of interest. So if a user watches a video all the way through to the end and then less weight to factors like location. And this enables them to produce a personally catered feed that puts content first. So I think that um, there's a bit of a misconception among people who haven't used the app that it's just full of dance videos. But in reality, the algorithm works so fast that after a small number of swipes, it learns that you skip straight past dance videos. And you're more inclined to watch, say, football highlights or you know cats falling off of things if you're into that. And users can quite quickly find themselves in these TikTok communities like Clean Talk, which is full of cleaning hacks. So really, you know, the ease at which users can discover content through their personalized feed is the key differentiator here. But I should also mention, and I'm aware this is beginning to sound like an ad for TikTok, but it's video editing tools and features are very advanced for a free social media app. You know, there are so many tools like video filters, uh, the duet feature, which means you can feature side by side on another user's video. And of course, you have the audio clips and those tools enable users to create an endless amount of new content. They also spark those all important viral trends. So that all sounds pretty innocent, but TikTok has courted a lot of controversy over the last few years. It's been banned in some countries and indeed it was singled out by Donald Trump, who sought to ban it in the USA. Now, has this controversy been part of the platform's success among the demographics using the platform? Uh, And if so, who are they? Well, I'd say because the platform has had such a rapid rise to global success, it is difficult to pinpoint to what extent controversies played a role here. I mean, generally speaking, temporarily banning an app or, or threatening to ban an app immediately gives it a heap of publicity and people begin downloading it out of fear that it's going to be gone forever. I mean, I still have an old phone with a copy of Flappy Bird on it that I've refused to throw away. (laughs) But um, as you said, uh, TikTok was singled out by Donald Trump. But the boom in the US really happened earlier on in 2020 and coincided with the COVID-19 pandemic and the stay-at-home orders that came with it. Although I am sure that uh, Trump's threat to ban TikTok may have unintentionally promoted the app, and particularly because of its young user base. So um, through Ampere's consumer survey, we can see that almost 60% of TikTok users are under 35. So a large proportion of its user base, you know, not only might be more inclined to download something that's going to be banned, but they've also grown up with social media and they're used to handing over their data. So controversy around data usage is ultimately giving the app publicity. I mean, we can also look at India as an example. So India was TikTok's largest foreign market before it was banned, and it was a matter of increasing controversy in India. So there were data usage fears fueled by tensions between China and India, and also just a cascade of bad press surrounding some of its content. So TikTok was first banned in India back in April 2019, and that ban lasted for only a few weeks and was estimated to have cost the app 15 million new users. Now, by May already, it had reclaimed the spot as the most downloaded app in India. So you could argue 
that there's no such thing as bad publicity because of this immediate recovery. But ultimately, when the app was banned again last summer, that was a really a major hit for TikTok and they lost roughly 200 million Indian users. So realistically, an official and permanent ban is not going to contribute to TikTok's success. But luckily for a TikTok users in the US, President Biden has revoked Donald Trump's ban on TikTok. So as it stands, there's no permanent ban for them to worry about. Uh, I think we're all fairly familiar with uh, social media platforms, but let's try and put some context around TikTok. So so how big is TikTok compared to some of the uh, more regularly used social media platforms like Facebook, for example? Well, um, unfortunately for us, TikTok figures tend to come around quite sparingly. But one of the benefits of these lawsuits that we were talking about um, is that we then get an insight into how big TikTok really has become. So we actually got a great insight on the back of the US lawsuit last August, and that revealed that there were more than 100 million monthly active users in the US and 690 million users globally. Now, if you compare that to, say, Facebook, uh, Facebook had 2.7 billion users around the same time. So we're not looking at the same level as Facebook just yet. But Snapchat, on the other hand, you know, a more similar app to TikTok, they announced monthly active user figures for the first time this May. And that's because they hit the milestone of 500 million. So in terms of monthly active users, a TikTok has surpassed Snapchat and it's coming up behind Instagram, which has roughly a billion. But what's remarkable is the speed at which TikTok has acquired these users. I mean, it took Instagram over three years to go from 100 million to 500 million users, whereas TikTok has done this in less than half the time. TikTok is not the, the first short form video platform, um, and you've already mentioned some of its competitors, uh, but it does seem to be enjoying some kind of first mover advantages. Uh, but who are its competitors in the sort of more established space? Oh, well, one of the really significant moves TikTok made was eliminating a would-be competitor in the US by acquiring them. And that was the app Musical.ly, which was a, a short form video lip syncing app um, that was popular in the US among teens. And Musical.ly merged with TikTok in 2018, and that gave them a head start in the US market. So not long after this merger, we started seeing other tech giants coming out with short-form video features. Uh, the first one being a failed attempt by Facebook with the launch of Lasso, uh, which you probably haven't heard of. Uh, but the second half of 2020 is when we really started seeing competition emerge on the global paying field. And that's with the likes of you know, Instagram, uh, YouTube, and Snapchat. Now, Instagram is probably TikTok's closest competitor, and they launched Reels last summer, which it very closely resembles TikTok's For You feed, if you've ever used it. And so, you know, there, Instagram really has the best of both worlds, and it's, it's built from real-world connections with people looking at their friends' content. And then if you run out of that, there's a tab with an endless stream of popular content from users you don't know. And then, of course, you've got um, YouTube Shorts or Google's response to TikTok. So um, usually with YouTube, users record and edit outside of the app and they just upload it to YouTube. Whereas with Shorts, uh, just like TikTok, uh, users can record, edit and upload videos inside the app. And Shorts has also got the added benefit of users being able to access the wider YouTube catalogue. But in the same way that TikTok's competitors are leaning more towards short form video, a TikTok also is reaching out to a wider audience in the online video space. So we're actually seeing them experiment with TV apps. I mean, they've just announced that the TikTok TV app is now available through Amazon Fire TV in select European markets. And that's following launches on Samsung TV, Google TV, Android TV. So TikTok's no longer going to be restricted by the small screen. And it's also introduced uh, longer videos of three minutes. So they're also trying to you know, preempt TikTok creators moving onto platforms that will allow them to showcase longer form content like YouTube. 
Now, we can't talk uh, much more about TikTok without mentioning the Euro 2021 sponsorship. Now, how is that really going to benefit TikTok? Oh, well, yes. First and foremost, you know, commiserations to any England fans out there after the game on Sunday. But um, yeah, so the quite unexpected partnership really uh, was announced back in February. And the partnership was the first of its kind for the UEFA, having a digital entertainment platform sponsor one of its major international tournaments. But truly, uh, TikTok and football, when you think about it, they've got quite a few overlaps. Um, So, you know, they both have global reach. They've got high engagement. But possibly, and one of the things that I found was the strongest overlap is these sort of highlight clips, which are turned around so fast when you're watching the game. And that's ideal content for TikTok, really. But, you know, unfortunately, the sponsorship's ended now <laughs> and we don't have the consumer data to look at it just yet. But we'll get a really good look at it in our next consumer wave. And one of the things that I looked at before the Euro started was using Ampere's consumer data to compare European respondents who indicated that they enjoy watching the UEFA European Championship and then respondents who reported using TikTok in the last month. So in doing that, we can see clearly how the partnership was mutually beneficial for both TikTok and UEFA. So Euros fans are significantly under-indexed for the younger age brackets where TikTok excels. Um, so only 8% of Euros fans fell into the 18 to 24 age bracket compared to 34% of TikTok users. So is this indicative of uh, TikTok seeking to develop its consumer base outside of its core demographic? Uh, yeah, most definitely. If you're watching the games, you'd have seen TikTok flash up a lot of the time uh, during the football. So it got you know, a huge amount of um, coverage among these older football fans. You know, and we'll be able to see if that translated into an increase in TikTok usage among the older demographics. Uh, what will be interesting to see from uh, Ampere's next consumer wave is if there's a particular increase in TikTok usage in countries that have a high proportion of Euros fans like uh, Poland, France and Germany. And in the same way, we could also see an increase in Euros fans in the countries that in the last consumer wave had a low percentage of Euros fans and a high percentage of TikTok usage. So those would be the likes of Finland, Norway and Russia. But of course, um, we'll also be looking out for a large decrease in Euros fans in the UK after the results of Sunday night. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. It seems like it's very much a case of watch this space as uh, as TikTok uh, extends its tendrils into uh, other markets. Now, uh, finally, the merger between Warner Brothers and Discovery in May 2021 produced the largest single commissioner of content in the US market. That's larger than both Netflix and Disney. Both Warner and more recently Discovery have launched subscription video on demand platforms in the USA and elsewhere, further crowding an already fragmented domestic US market. Discovery Plus is one of a number of subscription video on demand services that launched over the course of the pandemic. However, unlike its counterparts, it's not a global service yet. Uh, But Annabelle, in what countries is the service currently available? Thanks, Richard. Uh, yeah, so Discovery Plus confirmed a global rollout to 25 markets. Um, so we're currently kind of in the process of that at the moment. So far, it's launched in India in early 2020 and the US in um, January of this year. Um, and in the US, it has both an ad-supported and an ad-free tier. Um, in terms of the other markets, Dplay was also rebranded as Discovery Plus in the UK, Ireland and Nordic markets and also a selection of other European markets towards the end of 2020. And that was using a range of different rollout partners. So uh, Sky in the UK and Tim in Italy, for example. 
Now, for a recently launched service, what kind of consumer engagement and penetration uh, is Discovery Plus seeing in those markets? Yeah, so, so far they've seen mixed levels of success in the different markets. Our consumer data from Q1 in 2021 indicates a particularly successful launch in the US, India and the Nordic markets as well. Um, Norway indicates the most successful launch, um, with 13% of consumers reporting having access to a subscription. And then that's followed by India at 11% and 10% in the UK. And then Sweden and Denmark also make up the, the top five markets for Discovery Plus. Um, as the Dplay brand was already available in, in the Nordic markets, that will have given Discovery Plus a bit of a leg up there in terms of uh, subscription numbers. So the, the higher reported numbers there are to be expected. Dplay was also already available in the UK, but as an AVOD service rather than um, a subscription service, which is why we've seen slightly slower uptake in comparison to the Nordics. Um, only 3% reported having access to Discovery Plus um, earlier this year in the UK. So with those pre-existing services aside, that reported um, subscription level is very, very high for a service which is quite so young. Um, indeed, it's readily comparable in some cases to the growth that we saw from uh, Disney+. Plus. Um, in those markets where it wasn't previously existing, how is that being achieved? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, again, I think the reasons for the success of the service really vary by the market. So as we've kind of said with Nordics, um, Dplay will be a strong factor in the success there. Um, also in the Nordics Discovery Channel, their channels as a whole are very popular in those markets. Um, our consumer data indicates that 25% of consumers across across Norway, Finland, Sweden, and Denmark report watching a Discovery Channel in the month before fieldwork, um, which makes it the second most popular um, or the most viewed channel group out there. Um, whereas in the UK, where the launch perhaps hasn't been um, quite as successful, um, only 18% report viewing a Discovery Channel in the last month, um, which makes it seventh most popular in that market. So I think we can see that... Um, the channels, the kind of core discovery channels are playing a, a really big part in subscriptions too. Um, in the USA, they're also the second most viewed. So 30% of people have watched a discovery channel in the previous month, which um, which is very high again. And we can see that from um, Ampere's analytics data as well, that the US version of Discovery Plus has by far the largest amount of content hours available on the service. I think it's around 29,000, 30,000. Um, available at the time of our consumer field work. And that compares to just under 16,000 in Norway, which is the second largest library. So um, there's a huge library there. Another reason probably for the success in the USA is that Discovery Plus was available for free for a year for certain Verizon mobile and internet customers there. Um, our consumer data indicates that a third of Discovery Plus subscribers also have access to Verizon mobile. So while not all of those subscribers will have access to the free version, depending on their um, Verizon package, it suggests that that's likely to have been a big contributing factor as well. So I think there's definitely a lot of variation kind of based on the market strategy and also, I guess, brand popularity in all those different markets as well. Okay, so focusing on that uh, US domestic market, uh, who are Discovery's, uh, who are, rather, who are Discovery Plus's target consumers? And, and how, do they differ in any way from uh, Discovery's core consumer base who are uh, accessing that content via its existing channel models? 
Yeah, so um, our data indicates that the early adopters of Discovery Plus in the US are young families. So subscribers are 80% more likely to be in the sort of 30 to 35 to 44 um, age bracket. And they're also 86% more likely to have young children. So um, there's a very kind of strong skew towards those households. They're also very likely to have higher incomes. Um, I think 72% and 51,000 or more compared to about 47% on average. And one of the interesting things that we can see for Discovery Plus is that their subscribers are highly engaged with SVOD services already. Um, so the data suggests that 86% have access to five or more SVOD services compared to 29% for the US as a whole, um, which suggests that currently Discovery Plus is potentially seen as more of an additional service rather than one of the kind of primary must-have services like Netflix, for example. So I think in order to broaden their appeal to sort of lower income households who perhaps don't take on quite as many services, they'll need to establish themselves as one of the kind of key players and convince consumers that if you can only have, you know, a few services in your household, Discovery Plus needs to be one of them. Um, and in terms of how this differs from their sort of core, core channel viewers, um, the skew towards that 35 to 44 year old age bracket is much weaker for the actual kind of, um, channel base. Um, viewers of the channels are only 22% more likely to fall into that age bracket compared to the, to the 80% I mentioned earlier for Discovery Plus. Um, and I think another kind of key difference around age is that Discovery Plus subscribers are less likely to be in kind of the oldest age groups we look at in our consumer survey. Um, so for Discovery Plus, they're less likely than average to be in that 55 to 64 year old age group. Whereas for, um, discovery channels, they're actually more likely to be in that age group. So I think one of the kind of key targets for the platforms and one of the key things to focus on going forwards will be that that older age group. Thank you, Annabelle. It really does sound like Discovery Plus is tapping in to consumers who are, who are yet to discover uh, the joys of watching uh, Discovery's documentary output. Now, unfortunately, that's all we have time for in this edition of the AMP podcast. All that remains for me to do is to thank all my guests, so, Richard, for helping us to understand the factors driving the growth in satisfaction and its implications for new streaming players. Maria, for her analysis on TikTok and how it's seeking to extend its user base away from its core demographic. And finally, Annabelle, for providing greater insight into the impact of the Warner Brothers and Discovery merger has had on the Discovery Plus platform. To make sure you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes, please remember to hit that subscribe button. And for more information on Ampere's research and services, please do get in touch with us at info at ampereanalysis.com or head over to our website, www.ampereanalysis.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.